0: Hey, marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends and insights in marketing, advertising and tech, check out the Adweek podcast network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackel. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. I knew that there were 80% of folks who looked like me who had the same problem. And many of those folks shared the same values that I had. And as a result, we were able to slowly and gradually build a large tribe of folks who believed what we did. So for folks who are trying to start companies, but particularly those who want to build brands, I think everything starts with authenticity. Without authenticity, you can't have empathy, and empathy is everything.
1: Welcome to the Business of Marketing presented to you by SAP. I'm Toby Daniels and I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at Adweek. On this week's episode, we are joined by Tristan Walker. Tristan is the founder and CEO of Walker and Company Brands. And when it comes to resumes, you might be hard-pressed to find one as impressive as Tristan's. Before founding the health and beauty brand Walker & Co. in 2013, Tristan spent time working as an energy trader at both Lehman Brothers and J.P. Morgan. He then completed an internship during the early days at Twitter, served as the director of business development for Foursquare, and was the entrepreneur in residence at Andreessen Horowitz. In 2012, he co-founded Code2040, which finds the brightest Black and Latino engineering undergraduates and gets them internships at the best technology firms. In the following year, he launched Walker & Co, with the goal to build the world's most consumer-centric health and beauty products company. During our conversation, we discussed his career journey, what led him to creating Walker & Co., the six personal values he used as a foundation for building the brand, the 2018 P&G acquisition of the company, and the major aspirations that he's still progressing towards under P&G ownership. We also talked about the Bevel brand and its anti-recidivism initiative aimed to raise awareness on the need to reform and end the practice of recidivism. Tristan is a remarkable human, business leader, and entrepreneur, and I am so excited for you to hear his story and the work he is doing at Walker & Co. In addition to my conversation with Tristan and throughout season two of this podcast, We have been spotlighting a number of different startups who have participated in sap.io's foundries program during this episode you will hear from fang chen who is the ceo at link the only end-to-end cx automation solution purpose-built for brands and retailers link was not just part of the sap foundries program in 2019 But has since gone on to partner with sap learn the genesis of this idea and what they see as the biggest drivers of growth for their company thank you for listening and now for my conversation with tristan walker tristan welcome thanks so much for joining it's great to have you on the show great to be here all right so there's a ton for us to cover in our conversation today i'm super excited for you to be on the show, for you to share your entrepreneurial experiences and also some of what you're working on at Walker and Company with our esteemed audience. But first, let's start with a little bit of history. Let's bring our listeners up to speed with your career and some of your noteworthy achievements. I want to touch on a few of them right now. So, prior to founding Walker and Company, you were an entrepreneur in residence at Andreessen Horowitz prior to that, and I think this is when you and I first met, you were the Director of Business Development for Foursquare. That's a long time ago. A very, (laughs) a very long time. One might even say an entire lifetime ago. That's right. (laughs) And while you were at Foursquare, you were overseeing strategic partnerships and monetization. And prior to that, you completed an internship at Twitter in the platform's early days. And so throughout your career, and I hope you're not going to blush, but you've earned some pretty impressive accolades including USA Today's person of the year, Time 100's next ebony magazines 100 most powerful people, Vanity Fair's next establishment, Fortune magazine's 40 under 40 and Black Enterprise's 40 next. It's a pretty it's a pretty remarkable resume Tristan honestly and and it's been just so great to watch your career, to observe and to follow along in, in all of your achievements. But what I'd love for you to do is walk us through this journey. Sh- share a little bit about some of the most memorable learning sort of lessons or, or points along this journey that that were just stood out for you and, and, and really helped to shape your career and the, and the journey that you've been on. And in addition to that, I'd love for you to talk about some of the people that have really been influential along this journey and throughout your career.
0: Yeah, no, so you know, great to be here. Thank you again uh, for the opportunity. Look, I, my journey has been a pretty long one. You know, I just turned 37 this past July. The experiences that I've had have been a true blessing. And I'd probably say that there are two big lessons that stand out for me. And folks have really encouraged me to dig deep within these two things. Number one, know who you are, right? Know what your values are. And that's something that I try to preach all the time. Before I started the company, I wrote them down, I defined them, and I organized my life uh, around these six values, not only at the company, but also in my personal life. Having courage, inspiring, practicing good judgment, respecting folks, practicing good wellness, earning loyal. These are things that really guide every single thing that I try to do. The other thing that I learned was to have and take extreme focus in every single thing that you do. The best way that I could explain at least my career to date or my interests are really centered around three themes of the world that I exclusively focus on. And they're as follows. First, the demographic shift happening in this country and the cultural influence of Black people within it. I I think it's singularly the most important theme of my lifetime. Secondly, technology and its impact on this demographic shift, equipping the curators of culture with the tools they need to spread it. I think that's just a wonderful opportunity, particularly recently. Then lastly, I've I've always just loved great brands uh, because I think they could be a true force for good in the world. And every single thing that I've done over the past decade and God willing the next five decades are in full embrace of those three themes. So having a kind of clear-eyed, steely-eyed focus on those three things and knowing who I am has really led me to this place. As far as some people who have been instrumental in that, first I have to give shout outs. I mean, I've had the kind of great fortune um, to help lead a group of really committed folks that keep me honest frankly, and lower me from the clouds a bit. We're working on something fairly ambitious for a consumer group that we care dearly about. And I have to give my team a lot of kudos for making sure that I maintain those values. But folks like Wright, who does exactly the same, she is as close to my spirit as anyone and keeps me accountable. And there are folks out in Silicon Valley, folks like Ben Horowitz, Mark Andreessen, and others that really showed me what ambition can be. And I'm ever grateful for their instruction and help and guidance.
1: What I love about your story, and in particular the stories that relates to, to business, is that it originated from a fundamental problem that you felt uniquely positioned to solve. And for a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, share with us some of the insights in regards to what it takes to build a brand from the ground up. And what were some of the key challenges that you encountered and and how did you navigate them?
0: Everything for me starts with authenticity. Going back to this idea of lessons, one thing I learned in Silicon Valley is if you're going to start anything, right? And think about what makes you uniquely positioned to do that. At least as I think about Walker and Company, by solving my own problem, I knew that there were 80% of folks who looked like me who had the same problem. And many of those folks shared the same values that I had. And as a result, we were able to slowly and gradually build a large tribe of folks who believed what we did. So for folks who are trying to start companies, but particularly those who want to build brands, I think everything starts with authenticity. Without authenticity, you can't have empathy. And empathy is everything. Uh, particularly as you think about things and events over the past year or so. So that's Tantamount. That's the number one thing that I could offer for advice uh, for any aspiring entrepreneur, why you? And be very clear about that why you in a way that's deliberate and intentional.
1: It's interesting. I want to go back to the values that you just touched on a second because in a way it speaks to this idea of bringing authenticity to your work and, and to the foundation of building a brand. So you touched on these like six personal values and it's an area that I'm really interested in because it many businesses and even individuals for that matter struggle to come up with what their kind of core values are. And to a certain extent it's because it's Hard, but also because it's easy to attach yourself to something, a word like judgment or loyalty or respect, but not necessarily really connect at that like emotional level to why it matters to you personally. So I'm interested, first of all, in understanding why, how did you come up with them in the first place? How did you connect to these values? And then, second, why did you feel it was necessary to bring them from a personal point of view and perspective into? your business?
0: Yeah, so I'll start in reverse and I'll start with a bit of a story that I've shared in the past. There was one company that I had to you know, speak at for Black History Month and there's just a one-on-one fireside chat with the CEO. It's of a company that's probably one of the largest companies um, in the tech space and everybody would know who they are. And so we, we had the same conversation and I was talking about my values and how I came up with it, which I'll share. But then I looked at him and I asked him, I was like, so what are your company's values? And he had this like anxious look in his face, uh-oh. And he shook a little and then pointed at one of his colleagues in the audience and said, hey, yeah, tell them what they are. And right. I felt, wow, how embarrassing that you don't even know what your own values are. And I, the, that's the reason why I wanted to write them down for myself. The problem for a lot of companies, you mentioned it's being hard. I don't think it's hard at all. It's only hard uh, when you try to create some and kind of instill values in a company that don't match your own personal values. I don't understand how those two can go together. So for me, I wrote my values before like the company had even started. It was just an exercise that I wanted to do for myself. I'm a kid from 40 projects in Queens, New York, who ended up raising tens of millions of dollars for his company, it sits on two public boards, has had the most kind of amazing, wonderful blessings and experiences. How How's that even? And I wanted to codify that for myself and use it as a framework for making decisions. Look, we live in a very messy and complex world, and there's a million decisions you need to make a day. But what framework are you going to use to make your life simpler, easier? And for me, it was writing them down. I went to Starbucks, and it took me 45 minutes to do it. It is simple. I just reflected on the things. I had to have a semblance of courage to get out of the condition that I was in growing up. Um, Loyalty and earning it was of the utmost importance. Where I come from, if you weren't loyal, you can die. Like this is real life stuff for me. I codified it for myself. I said, you know what? From a friendship perspective, I'm only gonna hang around with folks that share these values. At my company, because I've thought about these kind of personally for myself, I wanna be around folks at my company who share these values. And most importantly, and we've got to really entrench it in every single thing that we do at our company. So when we do interviews, we'll ask you leading questions to get at the heart of those things. You know What we try to do, at least uh, for our annual reviews, and we can do a better job at this, I think too, is yes, you're rated against your goal attainment, but we want to really help you understand whether or not you're adhering to these values in the right way. Now, it's our goal um, to progress, right? We're not 100%. It's about Progress over perfection. But all too often, there are a lot of companies that haven't even reached 10% to the 100% goal. And the last thing that I'd say, and this is really important, something that I had to learn over the past year or so, and I have to thank my colleagues for this as well, is sometimes you get caught up in your own um, hubris a little bit, and it becomes like this marketing engine for recruitment, et cetera. But what's really important is are you drinking your own Kool Aid or not? And we had to bring in a third party. Um, consultant to do a good cultural assessment of the company to see if we're actually following our values. So it's also important to have kind of outside accountability of the things that you're trying to purport internally.
1: Love uh, that, and I do want to just go back to this point about authenticity again because I, I think that it, it, this is again one of those sort of challenges that I think that a lot of entrepreneurs experience. In those early days, you can bring so much of yourself to the business and 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 so much authenticity to thinking about the strategic vision, the, the product, how you serve and support your customers, et cetera. But as you grow, as the company gets bigger, as you hire more people, and in particular, obviously with your story after being acquired by P&G, I can only imagine how much harder it becomes to continue to bring that authenticity to what you do and to the business at large. To talk about that for a little bit. How do you maintain that? I don't think it's hard at all.
0: I I started this company, right? Like I, there are things that I expect from an authenticity, how we show up to the folks that we care about, not only our people, but also our consumers that really matter. Now where it gets tricky in my seat is like, I'm a CEO working on a big vision with some semblance of charisma. And I wanna make sure that our people are letting me know when I'm doing right from wrong. Am I adhering to those things or not? So the thing that I've had to learn over these years as the company has grown, as we had folks come and go, is do we have the right systems in place for scalable accountability? So as I talk about that third-party consultant, as I think about, I just recently shared with my team, like 360 feedback survey, right? Share with me things that I do, things that I could be doing better, and share with me how I can be doing those things better. So for me, it's all about frameworks and systems Because without those, you're flying blind a bit and you're drinking your own Kool-Aid.
1: I was reading Reed Hastings, No Rules recently, and, and incredible what he brings to that business in terms of not just authenticity, transparency, but particularly around that kind of 360 process, which a lot of people found so uncomfortable in those early days, but his like radical approach to kind of candor has really helped to shape the culture of that organization. Does his story and does like Netflix as a business, does that resonate with you? Do you look to them as inspiration? No. (laughs) I had a feeling you were gonna say that. And
0: I I have to say it because look, I think you gotta think about walking company differently. We're a majority folks of color company. Mm -hmm. With that comes a different way that we have to show up for each other. Right, there are traumas that we face as people of color. This past year has really made that clear. And yes, you can have radical candor, but it has to be supplemented qualitatively with an expansion of your capacity for empathy. And that tension is one that we and something that I have to go through a lot as a CEO at Walker and Company with some of the stuff that I had just mentioned to you, right? Because I want to make folks feel like this is the place that they want to be, and I need to create the systems that provide opportunities for transparency. It's not enough to just say, hey, be transparent. There are a lot of shy folks that are unwilling or fear that because they're not the CEO, if they say something wrong, they might lose their job or something like that. The onus is on me (laughs) to make folks feel more comfortable. And that's where some of the systems-based approach comes in, but it has to be thought about deliberately, particularly in companies with kind of folks of color within it who want to thrive.
1: Let's take a break from my conversation with Tristan and hear from Fang Cheng the CEO at LINK, a former participant in SAP.io's Foundries program, as she talks about why automation is a strategically critical role in any organization's ability to navigate risk.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Fang Cheng. I'm the co-founder and CEO of LINK. We are proudly part of the SAP Foundry program 2019 and since then Link also became a partner uh, with SAP and at product level we have multiple connections between the two companies systems. Link is a customer experience automation platform that is purpose-built for retail. We help some of the world's best brands to turn customer service experience into their competitive advantage. To date, Link powered the customer experience has served over 100 million consumers across $40 billion of GMB. We're living in an age where the power has shifted from brand to consumer. Customer experience became a critical factor for consumers to decide where to shop. Link was founded upon the obsession to understand and eliminate the consumer friction exists anywhere within the consumer-brand interactions. We quickly recognize that the ability to take a customer service um, experience and making it accessible and frictionless is key to brand loyalty. And to do that at a scale, brands need to bring automation into the mix of their overall CX strategy. I think the transformation of leveraging automation in customer service practice is still at its early days. What the pandemic has taught the industry in the past 18 months is that automation is not just about cost saving, it serves a strategically critical role in the organization's ability to navigate risk. As that recognition being pressed in into the industry, we see tremendous amount of tailwind for players in this space to accelerate growth. Here, specifically at the link, we're really uh, excited about the future where the uh, typical types of customer service organization is no longer just about the human force that we put into the team, but also is going to be a hybrid organization between AI agents and uh, human agents.
1: Thanks to Fang for introducing us to her business and the work that they have accomplished with SAP.io. You can learn more about LINK by visiting letslink.com. And if you're interested in joining the SAP.io Foundries program, check out the show notes for more information. And now back to my conversation with Tristan Walker, founder and CEO of Walker & Co. So in in the same vein as Values & Purpose, your company takes into consideration several important themes for brands to pay attention to and you obviously just touched on 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 one of the most important certainly in terms of how it is influencing society and and culture today and that is obviously this demographic shift that's happening in the U.S. and the, the the cultural influence of people of color within it And I'd love for you to speak to this a little bit more, again, from both your personal and professional experiences. What are some of the insights that you can share here in terms of how we as an industry can better facilitate conversations around these topics and also bring more empathy to to today's underrepresented consumers?
0: Yeah, it's, I'll start with a story and then I'll map it back to those three themes that I mentioned early on. So, you know, I founded a not-for-profit about nine years ago or so called Code 2040. The goal of it at the time was to get the highest performing Black and Latinx engineering undergraduates internships in Silicon Valley and provide them with all the tools they need to be incredibly successful, right? Media training interview bias training. It's one of the more successful not-for-profit programs in Silicon Valley. We have 90 plus percent time off rate. We've graduated 600 fellows through the program. It's wonderful. Had a slide and said, we want Silicon percent of America's black folks. We want Silicon Valley to be 14% black folks in position of leadership and all that stuff. Makes sense. And that's something that a lot of folks articulate. We had another board member in the room Uh, raise his hand and he shared something that didn't necessarily uh, change my worldview, but enhanced it. He said, why should Silicon Valley only be 14%? Why shouldn't Silicon Valley be 60%? And it's interesting when you ask that question, folks don't have the answer (laughs) because they haven't thought that far. It's almost like we are limited by just these percentages that exist. And that's all the work that we need to do. Black people aren't only 14% of the cultural influence in this world. And if you just think about things in that way, if you have almost like this (laughs) over-indexed For a group that is so culturally influential, that kind of guides consumer culture, and if you're a consumer company, why wouldn't you be thinking in this way? There's no shortage of data to suggest that diversity leads to greater profits. It is your fiduciary duty (laughs) to have um, diversity. If you're not doing this, then your reasoning has to be. So this is what I'm trying to get at with Walker & Company and trying to convince people. Why are you fighting against this? And I think having that over-indexed mindset make space uh, for empathy and understanding, right? Why is this group so culturally influential? How does this impact my business? Just think about some names, right? Kanye, Rihanna, right? Who's now a billionaire, right? You have Yeezy and Fenty. Uh, Like I can go all day about this stuff. over the past decade, it's been about tech, billion dollar companies, tech, 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 tech. But now folks are really starting to wake up to the fact that tech alone isn't it. There are users of that technology. And I've always been of the opinion from the time I started this company, even before that culture leads the tech. Now think about that. As I talk about technology, equipping the curators of culture with the tools they need to spread it. That to me is likely the most important theme of my lifetime. And it should be the most important theme of everybody's lifetime. The last thing that I'd say, and this is really important. And I think when I usually offer this example, it really starts to make sense for people. Facebook, founded in the year 2004, let's assume it was founded in the year 2040, folks that cover the majority of this country. Would Facebook be Spanish language first or English first? You know, that's one of those questions that go unanswered, similar to that 14%, 60%. But people should be answering that question, because I can see a world where folks who are not answering that question will no longer exist in 20 years.
1: That's Mm all. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I think the there's been a lot of talk and conversation more around, I think, pay inequality and how do we address the imbalance that continues to exist. And people talk about this like pendulum shift and it needs to go all the way. And when it comes back, we don't necessarily know what it will look like, but it might not be equal and that's okay. And you're speaking about this from a slightly different perspective this over indexing which needs to happen which i just think is so important at least the thinking of it whether or not it happens or not sure but it's a mindset shift. shift. the way you're what you're good at is opening up the conversation expanding people's perspective and and even opening helping them to expand their imagination in terms of what could be
0: yeah this like emerging majority that i like to call it right it is the least served but most economically significant consumer population in American history. No one has yet to rebut that that statement. And if that's true, we should all be thinking differently.
1: So let's talk about some of the more recent campaigns that you've been working on at Walker and Company. So early this summer, Bevel's anti-recidivism initiative launched, which aimed to raise awareness on the need to reform and end the practice of recidivism. Can you share a little with our audience, the inspiration behind it, and why this type of work is just so important to you?
0: This is some of our best work. And this is something I've wanted to do for the past eight years since I started the company. But now we're in a change here. So anti-recidivism, for folks who don't know, folks go into prison. If they get out, they are very likely to go back in. And particularly, I'm talking about um, Black folks um, who are in prison. And uh, it's unfortunate. And as you think about, like, why is it that they're going back into prison? Some of it is community-based support, but some of it also is inability to find jobs in those communities. And you fill out a job application. You got to check that box and you're already put at a disadvantage. There's an industry that is incredibly entrepreneurial, incredibly community-based, and one that we're very familiar with in the black community. And that, and this really started with the idea, can we give these returning citizens The tools they need, as I shared a little earlier, right? Tools they need to spread that, right? Tools they need to thrive, earn, and be supported. And barbering is such a wonderful opportunity to do it. You don't have to check a box. (laughs) You get the tools. You can get educated and learn how to do this. You learn a trade. And that's something that we're going to be doing. So we're going to be doing education-based scholarships, right? So how do we help some of these returning citizens get the kind of barber training and licenses, et cetera, they need to thrive, right? The tools they need to do it. And over time, you can imagine us getting closer um, to the time of release so that we could help ensure that they are matched within their communities to the right places with the right people, the right support systems to thrive so they don't go back. Now, isn't that a kind of legacy worth leaving? And I think Bevel can authentically
1: do that. As we just to go back again to what we were talking about earlier. And as we look ahead to this, like increasingly diverse country and world, what do you hope to see, particularly as we think about the role of humanity and technology, what would you like? Cause you, you spent time in a way in like the lion's den of the technology <clears throat> world, right? In Silicon Valley. So what would you like to see now that you're not in it as much would you like to see from this industry in terms of supporting some of your broader goals and ambitions with Walker and Company, but also in terms of more broadly supporting minority-owned businesses in general?
0: Yeah, look, I don't care what Silicon Valley does. If they (laughs) want to follow these things that I care about, if they don't, then too bad. I feel bad for them. Like, I I am wholly focused on kind of the work that Walker and Company does and anything that I could do ancillary, kind of in support of Black folks, but people of color more broadly. Look, Again, technology is not the leader, the culture is. And I think everyone's technology could be made having that empathy for this new emerging majority. That Facebook example I gave a little earlier is a complete like, perfect example of this shift in mindset that needs to happen. And if they don't wanna do it, well, there's gonna be some black founder who does (laughs) not And they're gonna make tens of billions of dollars as a result. I think we are in the greatest next couple of decades of potential wealth creation uh, for folks that are leading and guiding the culture. Tech is now table stakes. Now, you mentioned a little earlier that I'm no longer in tech. I rebut that. I think everybody's in tech. It has just fallen into the background now. How do we actually leverage it uh, to reach our goals more quickly? And that's how I think about it for Walker & Company. But if Silicon Valley doesn't want to do that, that's fine. Other people will.
1: Yeah, but I think you can also argue, though, Tristan, that you... You have a voice. You are influential. You wouldn't be on this podcast, you know, for, for example, and many others that I've heard you on. If you're not looking necessarily to to reach uh, people and influence and inform and hopefully even inspire, so I, I, I don't, agree. I
0: don't, I don't think that there's anything that I said up until this point that Silicon Valley shouldn't be listening to. I don't think there's anything specific about Silicon Valley that would be different in another industry. I think about these broad-based themes. They are the only themes that everybody should be focused on in business, full stop. That is my 100% belief. It is my nuanced belief. I am probably singular in that point of view, um, but I think I'll end up on the right side of history in that
1: but you're also focused and that's the key. All right, let's talk, about, let's talk about where you're taking the Walker brand going forward. What were some of your major goals as you came through the 2018 P&G acquisition for the brand? How do you reset? How have your aspirations and goals changed since then? And, and what are you working towards right now?
0: Yeah, look, when I started this company back in 2013, I always said I want to be around 150 years from now. The company, I wanted to thrive. Um, I think Procter & Gamble puts us in a position to do that. And Procter Gamble has been around for 180 years. So there's no other company in our space that has been doing it as they have for as long. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And folks think about acquisitions, they tend to focus on the kind of financial part of the deal and the terms and all that stuff. But I think a big win for us was the non-financial. We maintain our autonomy, which allows us to maintain our authenticity. We get to leverage the infrastructure and prowess and superiority of P&G from an R&D perspective. They're the number one advertiser on the planet. Some of this recidivism work, we're able to do it now effectively because we can leverage p and scale and scope <laughs> in advertising to do it. This is meaningful stuff. How are we able to maintain it on the other side and what are our goals? Look, I mean, they, they've never changed. As I think about Bevel, you know, we have the express aim to celebrate our unique difference, our unique cultural influence, our purchasing power, right? Bevel aims to be the number one trusted brand delivering personal care solutions to Black men in the U.S., full stop. We haven't done that yet. We're going to. And to do this, we've always believed we have to do these five things. And these five things are things that p is in full embrace of and supportive of. First, we have to prioritize the needs of Black consumers first. Notice I don't say only, I say first. Um, we do not equivocate, and it's important to realize that uh, when we say first, we don't mean you know, second. We believe consumer centricity really does require a problem-solution approach. We started with this whole razor bump thing, but as I think about skin dryness, et cetera, they all require this authentic commitment to solving problems for this specific audience. And this is not only true for Bevel, but all of our brands that we ever make, we got to be uncompromising on design and product efficacy, and content too. Our consumers really do celebrate that about us and we refuse to let them down. Fourth, we're a cultural institution that transcends race and nationality. And then last, I like to say we're this like generational brand, like deeply connected to the trials and successes of those that have come before us and those that will follow. Like these are our beliefs. And P&G believes that, and our execution of these beliefs really does give us great confidence that we have a right to earn and win that consumer loyalty. And, and these beliefs are really what strengthens uh, what we call like our own bevel difference, right? Our Walker and Company, more broadly, our difference, which guides and inspires everything that we do and how we show up in the world. So P&G has provided the platform for us to do that with excellence, uh, and I have every plan to continue that.
1: Love it. So this is season two of the business of marketing, And during this season, we're asking our c-suite guests to help us define what it means to be a modern and progressive leader in today's social, political, and economic landscape. And of course, the role of the leader has fundamentally shifted. you You will have needed to have developed, new skills that were perhaps not even in the CEO toolkit 10 or so years ago. So the question for you, Tristan, is what's in your toolkit? What skills, new skills have you had to to learn over the course of, of your time as CEO?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I love a group, good framework. Yes. And over the past year and a half, starting with kind of March of last year and COVID, you know, I talked about this idea of expansion of my capacity for empathy. That's provided me with this space to create a new framework, which guides really my leadership in all this kind of social and progressive work. And and it's a three-step approach. I've mentioned this before, but it's really important. And I'll repeat it as as long as I can. You know, first is this acknowledgement, right? Like how do we acknowledge the traumas that, at least in our case, folks of color have faced? for hundreds of years. I think too many brands try and go past the acknowledgement and they tend to fail, right? In establishing those connections. But we acknowledge it. We're people before anything. Before I'm a CEO, I'm a dad, I am a son, I am a husband, and so are the people who work for me. And a respect for their person is tantamount in their traumas that they go through. You know, once you've acknowledged that trauma, and the second thing that you can now do is model the way, right? And the only way that I can articulate this modeling of the way is to go back to the values that you have, right? You've defined them for yourselves. How can you actually provide consumers or people with the tools to hold you accountable? And values do that. And it's not only until you acknowledge and modeled they can actually act. And for us, as an example for Bevel, you mentioned some of the recidivism work. We've done some mental health work over the past year, as you start to think about some of these traumas that creep up for folks of color, particularly black folks and black men. And we partnered with Headspace to give free memberships, that sort of thing. But you can act with authenticity now because you've modeled the way after your acknowledgement. So this, first, it requires an expansion of your capacity for empathy to put you in a position for you to acknowledge, model, and act. Does that make sense?
1: It does. It makes a ton of sense. Actually, I co-hosted a content series last year called the business of empathy, believe it or not. And we had an opportunity to meet and interview a ton of C-level executives who over the course of the last few years and and last year in particular have just exhibited extraordinary levels of of empathy and and compassion for their employees, consumers, um, and have played a really meaningful role in terms of really helping to shape and elevate this part of the conversation and coming out of that one of the things that that, that just really struck us in terms of their capacity to be empathic really started with this idea of being able to just put themselves in other people's shoes and be really masterful at taking other people's perspective taking on perspective not just asking people what you think but taking on and feeling other people's perspectives and then using that to shape their thinking, shape their decision-making. It's it's just really, it's really extraordinary to see it. And and I'm curious to to hear from you. Who do you look at? Who are the empaths, the empathic leaders that you draw inspiration from? Huh. That's a good question.
0: It's a good question. My, My answer will probably be somewhat unsatisfying, but I'll try my best. As I think about my design influences, or product influences, or empathic influences, let's say, I find this like beauty in the mundanity of life. People wake up, they have to brush their teeth, they go to the gym, they engage with coworkers, they come back, they pick up their kids from school, right? There's a beauty in that cadence. And I think if our brands and our products and our who we are can show up in their lives in a unique and authentic way, then we have done something uniquely. The reason I bring that up is the folks who inspire me are our people and at Walker and Company. And in the conversations that I have with them when I can, right, there are some interesting conversations that come up like, hey, I have to go to the dentist or I really need to pick up my kid from school because the nanny got sick. And it has required me, to when I walk into a room when we had offices right or get on a zoom call or whatever to remember that i 'm not tristan ceo i 'm Tristan first you 're denise you 're gerard you 're whomever uh, and I have to you talked about this idea of stepping in other people 's shoes first, it starts with stepping out of your title because I think a lot of folks combine the two and it affects their person, so I try to step out of my title first and listen and also try to make the other person recognize to whom i 'm speaking that I make mistakes too, because I'm a person. But in those conversations, right, of the things that they need to do, the things that they prioritize, it inspires me to prioritize the right things. And this idea, as I talked about a little earlier around establishing these systems of accountability, you know, if wellness is one of our values and folks on our team are prioritizing that and they call me out when I'm not putting them in a position to prioritize that, then I need to do better. So I find my inspiration in action from the people that I get to act that out with.
1: Tristan, so many just phenomenal insights, man. I really do appreciate you. I appreciate your work, your perspectives. I appreciate your frameworks. I'm a framework type of person as well. So it's just always nice to speak with someone who is able to organize their thinking and articulate um, their vision in in just such a, a compelling way. So unfortunately, that is all the time that we have. Tristan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Such fun time. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Business of Marketing, brought to you by Adweek and presented in partnership with SAP. The Business of Marketing is produced by Al Manorino. The executive producer is Brian Letty. Support also provided by Erica Perry and Julian Gamboa. Please take a minute to subscribe and review our show. Your feedback means the world to us.